Man, welcome everybody. Here we are again, Chancy. Good morning, Brad. How are you, sir? Welcome everybody. Glad to be back. Man, we survived the first week. Yes, we did. It was a good week after last week, and looked like we got some good comments back. Boy, I mean, we did. And let me explain it to you. I got recording the first episode. Me and Chancy don't know anything about really much of anything computer-wise, but we've had some great help. Hey, shout out to your daughter. <laughs> last daughter week. Tessa. And yes. hey, we got a new producer today. We do. We have a Mr. Producer. We have a Mr. Producer, and and a mighty fine one he is. A lot of you local people around here. Now, of course, turns out, Chancey, people all over the world tend to tune in and listen to what we have to say. People as far as France and and Detroit, Michigan, Florida, uh, North Dakota, all over the place. Technology is incredible. It it? is incredible. I'm used to sitting here and talking to you and me and you being the only people listening. (laughs) And then as it turns out, people all over the world tune in to hear what we had to say and hopefully they enjoyed it yeah absolutely but back to who we have with us here today yes landon green landon green thank you mr producer landon green is here mighty mighty fine individual uh me and chancy were very good friends with his dad uh david green years ago and, and his uh, grandfather as well, yes. Oh, man, and his grandfather, the who was game warden. He was game warden here being, for as long as I can remember, and then became a sheriff. Yes, yeah. me and Chansey were growing up. He was a guy that would tell us what we were doing wrong and right. He was, and he was a very fair man and a very good man. I yes. Mean, he, he was very – he helped me a lot when I was, you know, it, running the woods and chasing critters and, I, you know, and doing some things that might have been a little shady, I guess. He was a teacher. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, he, he really was. He really was. Yeah, I've got some great stories of running in him and the way he treated us, you know. Yes, uh, and, and he was also very uh, – a big a big part of bringing deer to back to Central Texas. Uh, yeah, yes, he, uh, specifically Milam County. He yes. really did. So, And we'll get into that uh, yes. here in a little bit. So – we decided to change it up a little bit. Last week we introduced that we may this week talk about which deer to select. Uh, harvest know, strategy. We harvest were thinking strategies. about leading into something like that. So then we got together, we banged our heads together, and we said, well, you know, that's kind of the, the end of the story is which deer, you know, you need to take. So we decided to maybe put together a series. We don't really know how many parts the series will be just yet. No, we don't. But we figured we'd start at the beginning <laughs> it, list a little bit. <laughs> it'll be enough episodes to get from the beginning to the end. Yeah. Uh, and try to break it up into a way that makes the story make sense. And so the very first thing that we thought of starting with, believe it or not, whenever I, I said maybe, Chancy, we should start with the history of the white-tailed deer. Yeah, history uh, of white-tailed deer. In Texas and the world in central Texas. Yeah. I was like, oh, it might be kind of boring. But that is actually... A really fascinating story. It really is a great story, man. The history of white-tailed deer in North America, you know, or the deer, and then specifically white-tailed deer, and then from the beginning of just pre-Columbia, you know, when as Native Americans, all the stuff you read when settlers first got here is just this country was exploding with game, Mil- you know, just game everywhere. They talked about it all the time, and then what had happened since then, and then where we are today. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, if you if you started if you start to talk about the history of the white-tailed deer. Deer go back three and a half million years. The white tailed deer, right? Yeah, long time. Like they say, you know, in the early Pleistocene is when the deer really in North America, the cervid family started to kind of do something. But they, they, there wasn't much going on early Pleistocene, three and a half. You know, they were real diminutive as best. If you look at some of the research by Valerius Geist, Deer of the World, you know, he's he's an incredible evolutionary deer biologist, put a great book together, which is a lot of where this a lot of this information is coming from. But it wasn't until the, the late Pleistocene, like the glaciation, you know, during the last ice age, that deer really started to explode and break out across, you know, North America, you know, and just really explode in population as far as getting the variety and the different species, you know, elk versus moose, mule deer, old white-tailed deer. It doesn't seem like like the last ice ages when they, according to him, they really started busting out and doing re- really well. Yes, because back then, the, yes, there were deer. Mm-hmm. Probably had totally different ad- adaptations, totally different looks, totally different shapes. I mean, you know, I probably, mm-hmm. probably looked a little similar to what our deer looks like today. But at the same token, you know, I mean, like you take, for instance, like the the evolution of 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 the the finches on the galapagos islands yeah you yeah. know where where base i don't know if you're familiar with that story yeah but that's, yeah i have that's where the finches over time have like ran out of 
basically they're all competing for the same food and stuff. Mm-hmm. So their beaks have changed in shape. They've yeah, changed to utilize different resources. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so what was once one species is now tons of different ones. Yeah, there's a great book called The Beak of the Finch, I think, you know, that kind of goes into detail about that kind of thing. Is it stuff. really? Yeah, it's an interesting book. But it talks about all the different feeding strategies, how they kind of have t- tried to fit different niches, you know, and so their beaks have shaped differently to do so. And I'm sure that white-tailed deer had... Well, not you necessarily know, just white. white yeah. But deer, yeah, the cervid family. The cervid that family. That same kind of concept, you know. Uh-huh. They, when they really started after the last ice age, and the ice age is really important because we'll get to it, I think, on a topic about reproductive or biology of deer and why they eat what they eat. But, uh, you know, it seems like, you know, they are fertility junkies. So they're really tied to glaciation. So places that had glaciers during the last ice age, so basically all of the northern hemisphere is yeah. where most of the glaciers were. If you think about it, that's where most of the deer occur. Isn't that something If to you think, think about. about, you know, yeah. So uh, we believe that glaciation has a lot to do with it because glaciers made fertile soil. Chancey and, actually wrote a really interesting paper on this in grad school about why there's no deer in 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 a part of Africa. Yeah, basically below sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, there are some deer in Africa up in the Atlas Mountains, the very, very north of Africa, but there's no deer below the sub-Sahara, the Saharan Desert, you know, no deer, zero. And you know, which Africa's a huge cotton and everything, you know, so uh why is that? Why are there no deer in Africa? And if you consider that there's deer just about everywhere else in the world. Yeah, and you know, and some of them have been I don't think there's any deer in Australia. There was no placentiles in Australia, you know, historically. Yeah. There was all marsupials. Deer are just a fascinating critter, you know, so that's why I kind of looked at that study because, you know, but when you think about it, there's lots of no deer, you know, other than an, uh, a red deer species up in those Atlas Mountains, but then, you know, I think there's 90 different species of bovid like antelope in in africa something like that a bunch of them but but, but no if, deer. You, if you think about it, there are very few glaciers in africa did africa had a lot of glaciers and then if you just add to that like what deer that could have populated the nile so you're looking at what what are the closest deer that could uh populate africa well you're looking at the fallow deer and the red deer and theoretically those are both mountain adapted adapted deer yeah so are there any mountains that extend along the northern end of the right of the Nile? You know, there's no mountains. So that, maybe that's what cuts it off. Maybe so. They're just they're mountain adapted deer. You know, because the thing would be they love fertile soil. So what? There should be deer along the Nile Valley. You would think because that's ought to be some good fertile soils. I would think. Absolutely. But you know, there's no mountain ranges adapted. You know, or along the Nile. So. Theoretically, you know, it's a hypothesis. I don't know. And I haven't seen anybody, like, really addressing it. I got a lot from Dr. Geist in his book, you know, and he kind of mentions pieces, bits and pieces. But the only two species that could have done it would be the red deer, and there are some in Atlas. But they're just not adapted to the habitat along the Nile, so they probably didn't colonize those areas. And then when you add to, you know, competition, a deer, a white or other deer, mainly browsers, they can graze, but competition between antelope, Probably sure. just it was too too geographically isolated plus competition. You know, it could be a reason. May suggest a reason. There's no deer in sub-Saharan Africa. The paper Chancey wrote on that is fantastic, and mm-hmm. he sent it to me a while back, and it's really interesting to read uh, what all what his theory is on why those deer don't exist there. For three and a half million years ago, yeah, first deer show in up. North America. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then and 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 start to change from there. So. There's, what, 24, 34 million deer, probably? That's what they thought when the pre-Columbia, you know, before, before. Pre- Columbus got here, pre-Columbian times, yes. you know, when it's just the Native Americans, that was estimate, you know. Now, granted, we couldn't go back there and do spotlight surveys or censuses. There sure wasn't any. Doing you know, any spotlight. Yeah, trail camera surveys. No, there weren't whatever. no trail cameras yeah. back then. But no. anyway, you know, we guesstimated, there were a lot of smart people smarter than I did, that there were 24 to 34 million white-tailed deer in North America, which is astonishing. And, you know, early humans you know whether you believe people got here 10,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago for 20,000 years Native Americans were utilizing white-tailed deer big time big time big time yes absolutely I mean most of the remains the most I've read somewhere that the most abundant remains found in like caves and Native American early American uh, dwellings the other species that was most abundant found DNA it is white-tailed deer really yeah and even even like with the paintings and stuff in a lot of those. Oh yeah, I mean they were tied one hundred percent together. I mean, you know, pre-Columbia, white-tailed deer and human beings, we we used them for everything. 
you know, they ate them. Not only did they eat them, but they, you know, they, they, they used their, their hides, you know, their bones and their antlers. They made tools and spears and knives out of, fish hooks. But imagine how hard it was to kill one. There was no guns. I mean, it was you know there was nothing to shoot a deer with. No, so, I mean they were real good with bow and arrows, and then what they say atlatls. I'm guessing you know they've I've heard atlatls used to be very deadly. You know, and who knows? I mean, those I, sometimes I don't think we give those pre Native American, like pre his pre Columbian people enough credit. You know, I man. think they you know they had the same brain capacity that we have. So I, I think they're just as every bit of intelligent as you and Probably I are Probably a little here. more, Chancey, because they we're, couldn't Google something. They, they sure could You couldn't. had to figure it out on yeah, your own either, or you weren't going to figure it out. Yeah, or either you learned it, you know, when you when your granddaddy told it to you, you remembered it because he had experience, you know, so you paid attention. Absolutely. Dude. And, I, and you know, being as though it was a whole lot harder to take a deer down and all, you got, you used more of it. Oh, yeah. You, you know, didn't even go to waste. Yeah, because you weren't going to want to go do that again tomorrow. No. You know, I mean, you chase a dead gun deer down all day today or 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 uh you know of course there was a lot of them back then so yeah. it's easier to find well, i guess yeah it's funny you say that because this is really interesting and I, it reminded me and we didn't talk about this but uh when i was in temple college i wrote uh got real interested in cabeza de vaca and you know his sure. travels you know he's all over texas and i remember him he was talking about the native americans when they landed he was talking about how it just how you know their bow and arrows would pierce spanish armor it'd go right through their arrows they were engineered that well they were, by that point. yeah they're in the comp i mean they yeah and they could shoot them too but he said what was fascinating is that they were such in good shape if you think about it too like you know biology of white-tailed deer and how coyotes can kill them how wolves can get them in deep snow they can run really really and i've even done them you know i've even driven deer but you know they just run just a little ways and then look back see if the bad guy's still coming but cabez de vaca talked about how many of those indians they would run those deer down good Lord. in his journals anyway he talks about they would run them without horses. Like relays without yeah, horses without horses yeah they came yeah. in columbus <laughs> yeah the mm-hmm. horses did yes yeah the spaniards yeah. so they would run them I mean, they were you know so think about this is a a people their entertainment at night was looking at stars, you know, I mean, and, and, and cooking and working and Absolutely. cleaning, you know, I mean, yes. and, and you think like how a coyote can just stay on a deer, you know, and eventually he'll get tired. You know, they're built for speed, but not long range. People, if they adapt themselves, they can run a long ways. And as long as you're out in the, if it was, you know, a lot more open back then because native savannah, you could keep them in sight. You know, I can see how they could run one down but man still that's what he talks about in his journal which is quite fascinating that's unbelievable yeah. to think about mm-hmm. yeah and 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 uh so so then we get to like 1500 to 1800 so this is kind of crazy to think about but by that time from the 1500 to 1800 yeah by that time 50 to 65 percent of the deer population in north america had been wiped out yes yeah had uh, been reduced the white-tailed deer yes i mean that's that went from 24 to 34 million estimates okay so we have all these new people coming over yeah immigrants think about what's going on i mean yeah. we're not ranching cattle we have we don't have anything domesticated over here really probably maybe pigs maybe maybe pigs like or something you know I'm sure they had chickens you know trading pigs and things it, like that yes but and so what was going on you got to think about in the 1800s like the immigrants you know people were coming in literally by the boatload you know from all over I literally. mean it was our ancestors yeah. you know coming yeah. on the Irish the Czech you know every Germans English you know everybody was coming over and they were working in mines they were working in factories they were doing all kinds of stuff and they had to be fed you know so a lot of it you know there were ways to do it and there wasn't any game laws, you know. No, there were no game <laughs> no laws. Game laws. Yeah, yeah, that's so exactly think about right. it. Yeah. Yeah. That I mean, that's one of the that was one of the probably easiest game to to get. Probably. Sure. Well, like I said, if you read the, the the documentation when people first came over here, it was just America was this this land think that it was so full of abundance, so much wildlife it could never run out. You know, there was literally I can't remember, but I remember in college, you know, they during the market hunting days, they, they made this one big thing called a blunderbuster, you know, which was like a giant, giant cannon that you could shoot up and kill, you know, hundreds. And I don't know the exact numbers. I have to look it up and see. But of passenger pigeons. There was literally millions and millions and millions of passenger pigeons. I think even in the billions, they said, that covered the eastern United States. Just an amazing, amazing creature. But, you know. And very few people. Yeah, if it, very few people. But people were coming in like oh, crazy, yes. and there was no game law. So people were hunting and killing. Same thing with deer, you know. So started market hunting, and people started killing and marketing, no game laws. And it was just people thought that they could never run out. You know, the abundance was so game. And I remember so big, 
something like one day that was documented, two brothers went out on a morning or a weekend hunt, you know, and they killed several hundred species of or different ducks, you know, and this many deer just game was everywhere and it was just that plentiful yeah yeah and then we were bringing you know i guess most of the game was used to at laddles or bow and arrows and now here we're bringing muskets and things like that you know that's so, true that, you know and we're bringing technology so uh, they were the, the the wildlife was saying to each other we better start taking these humans a little more serious <laughs> yeah i think they think we so we weren't too scared of their rocks blowing at us but dang these, these new guns they got yeah uh, uh but so by this time six, 50 to 65 percent of the population been wiped out yeah and so market hunting doing people a lot of yeah it. market hunting people killing deer and selling mm-hmm. them you know for food for other people to eat mm-hmm. and i guess that kind of started what might be considered a type of a deer season in rhode island yeah yeah in, in 1639 yeah i think that's like the first documented in north america that like we got to do something you know we just wiped Holy out crap, our deer guys. herd and we don't have no deer I i've just been sitting out. in my deer stand for three days now and i haven't seen one <laughs> yeah yeah so, so we need to do something about yeah. this so i don't remember what the exact law was maybe they just closed the season for a little while but it was like the first game law and it happened in 1639 and this was in and this was in rhode island too mm-hmm. you know i mean i'm sure there was a pretty concentrated population there probably so time. yeah uh, but it didn't help much no it didn't it didn't the, the early concern didn't help the over exploitation this continued into the late 1800s you know i mean market hunting just kept on going and in the 1750s i read somewhere that deer hides you know provided the greater returns and other commodities you know they were shipped from all over, you know, the southeastern coast. That people traded deer and so hides. We're, we're almost a form of currency. Across, like, we were sending stuff back across the seas. Yeah. yeah or but I don't know if it's going all the way across the seas or not, but I know it was going up the coast to, like, the northeast and stuff like that, you know. But so, it, it may have been going back across. Uh, I, I know I saw something. It was from uh, old Dr. Damaris's book, The Came out of like from 1755 to 1773. There was about 600,000 deer hides shipped from Savannah, Georgia alone. Good lord, 600 grand. That that's yeah. a lot. Yeah. So yeah, in a period of, you know, from 55 to 73, so 20 years, 600,000 deer hides. But you know, shipped. it seems like I remember watching a documentary on that time period, mm-hmm. and deforest deforestation was a bad problem too, because there was yes. a, a lumber shortage overseas okay you know in in spain and that neck of the woods over there for building ships and stuff Mm -hmm. and so well lo and behold we get over here and there's tons of of trees and tons of lumber sure so we start clearing forests out left and right and giant trees too giant trees these trees had never seen a saw that was probably if i had to guess i'd say it was the first habitat destruction yeah you know by man man. on a large scale i'm sure we've been doing it in europe for a long time but north america no doubt about it i mean it that blows your mind because i just got to say this story it only took a second but last winter i was went to the pontchartrain you know and we went down into the pontchartrain and some of those cypress trees you know those giant giant cypress forests that basically built new orleans yeah those stumps are still sitting there and they were all logged like in the late 1800s Isn't and that those stumps are still there and they're you know i mean they're, they're like 10 foot diameter so you know but that stuff was going on we were clearing stuff in the 1800s and you left think those were, trees were big imagine the ones whenever they first got over here that had been growing since yeah the beginning yeah the I, like i heard you could drive a wagon it was so open there was no brush like just giant trees like on the north the american chestnut tree was in some of our white oaks you know just unbelievably sized trees you know 100 foot tall easy big 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 woods and if you think about that though like like all of a sudden not only are we killing the deer yeah but we're killing their habitat, their, their habitat too well, i bet they really did stuff. disappear yeah mm-hmm. you know and no it, no 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 seasons no seasons yeah 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 no so laws. so if i felt like killing 10 deer today i killed 10 deer today yeah sure could you know? and didn't matter if it i like backstrap i might just kill 10 deer and take the backstrap and leave the rest of it laying around mm. or something like that yeah. you know it could have been there was no restrictions or anything like that mm-hmm. uh but needless, needless to say in 1639 when they put in this deer season quote end quote deer season and that was just for rhode island just for rhode island this didn't control anything else outside of that it didn't help much and then western expansion comes around whenever everybody starts to move west yeah and that brought about railroads railroads and then uh, there was deer out in texas and in the west and everywhere else so you know it just continued the killing you know from east to west and then able to get those hides and ship you know through railroads back to the east coast you know absolutely so mark and i mean i know we've all seen those 
pictures of those mountains of buffalo or bison skulls, you know, during that time. So market hunting was a big deal, you know. Absolutely. Big deal. And it continued for a long time. And everybody's played Oregon Trail. You remember shooting the deer on little Oregon Trail? <laughs> oh, I do, man. That was the best part. Up with deer. Yeah, well, <laughs> at the store when it first started off, all I did was buy bullets, you know, because I spent on Oregon Trail all day just trying just to shoot, try, the, shoot that little That little dot going yeah. across the screen, <laughs> headed toward that little. Yeah, you had to time it perfectly. And you did. <laughs> yeah. It was a game of physics is what it, it was. It really was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure I'm sure it was a little different for the for the for the migrants. Yeah, I doubt it was similar to the Oregon Trail video game. But, but yeah, but yeah. anyway, during that time, I mean, we basically extirpated uh, the white-tailed deer from most areas east of the Mississippi. Well, then we had all those new weapons too. Yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, the the I mean, the guns and stuff started to evolve. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. And during the West and after the Civil War, I mean. Not everybody was out there with a flintlock, you know, and a muzzleloader anymore. We had the lever actions and stuff oh, like sure. that. Repeating arms, you know, first came out. So that was a game changer to a hunter if you no think laws. about it. And still, still no laws. Still no laws. Yeah, yeah you, you're still free to, you know, kind of kill whatever you want to kill. And there may have been some laws here in place, but then think about it. Were they enforced? You can put a law all day out, law out there all day long, but unless you got the means to enforce it. And there was none of that. Nah, I think, yeah, very yeah. little government, very little... No game wardens for sure. Yeah, probably not. At this not. point, mm-hmm. you know, and like you said, it, it communication was pretty bad. So, I mean, if there was a law made somewhere, it probably took it a while to get somewhere else. So, now by 1900, which is pretty recent, yep, uh, there was only about 500,000 white-tailed deer left. That's what they estimate, yeah, 1900. So, a reduction, you know, from 24 to 34 million to 500 grand. That's... Not very many deer. No, and when you think about from, you know, that it's one of the most widely distributed large mammals in North America, you know, they occur in all kinds of different habitats, which we'll get to. That was a big deal. You know, and, and basically people realize, look, we got to do something because even if we wanted to hunt a deer, there ain't no deer to hunt. Yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. They had basically, we have what's called a minimum viable population, you know, and once you go past how many, that's how many animals you need to survive and reproduce and have yes. that type of thing. Well, once you go over a threshold there, it just doesn't have the ability to come back, you know, as quickly, or it needs a lot more help, you know. So, yes. you know, even if they wanted to kill a deer, there wasn't no deer to kill. So they so basically it, locally extirpated. And know? at this point, it's not a law. That, I mean, you don't even need a law at this point. Yeah, until about 1900. But, you know? Because there's hardly any deer left to even shoot. I mean, mm-hmm. you can probably go several days without seeing one. Yeah, at this point. And that lasted a long time, mm-hmm. really. You know, we went on this way for, for a pretty good while. Uh, until the the Lacey Act, the Lacey, come Act. Along. Lacey, that was a game changer. That was a big deal, you know. You know what year that came out? Nineteen hundred. Yes. Oh, it I came think out they called it the Lacey Act of nineteen hundred. I believe something like that. Yeah, okay, I think so it was so what did this Lacey Act tell us, Jansen? So basically, what the Lacey Act did, which was one of our very first game laws, and it basically made it illegal to do something in one state and sell it. So it made it illegal to illegally kill white wildlife and plants it even protected plants, oh, plants and then sell too? them across state lines yes or plants pretty much all wildlife to basically trafficking of illegal wildlife it prohibits the trade in wildlife fish and plants it also includes state federal tribal and foreign lands so basically since they didn't have a lot of game wardens there wasn't a whole lot of enforcement but they made it illegal so if say New Mexico or Oklahoma put a game law and say you can't do this or you can't kill a deer in the spring during fawning season or in early summer. You can't kill one and sell it to somebody else for food or fiber or currency because you got to remember it was a form of money. Sure it was. You know, hides, people were trading hides. Well, the Lacey Act said you can't go across state lines with it. So basically it was really directed to market hunting, put a real good stop to market hunting uh, during that time. So you can no longer trade. You could you still trade first locally? Uh, yeah, you could think you could still trade first, but you couldn't kill it in one day and move it across state lines. You couldn't move what, it across state yeah. lines. And so yeah. that, that slowed down the harvest quite a bit, I would say, probably. Yeah, I mean, it's because they started trying to regulate. And then also that, just the, the dang, the, the sheer scarcity of deer was another impetus that led to the, just the reduction of commercial harvest. They just killed them all. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Um, but the Lacey Act was a big one, and like I said, I don't know the exact definition, but it stops the legal sale and transport of, of wildlife across state lines, federal, tribal. So even if you break the law in another in another uh, country or something. So 
the next thing that comes around, Chansey, I guess, is what we call restoration, huh? Yeah, restoration. So it was basically abundance, total abundance everywhere, then exploitation, followed by even more over-exploitation. Well, restoration. So that usually in North America began in the late 1800s, uh, and it was mainly consisting of single restockings for white-tailed deer. You know, and so it didn't get much, didn't pick up much steam uh, until about the 1930s. So 1930s, there's an act that Congress does, and it's called the Pittman-Robertson Act, and it was a game changer as well. It really helped restoration. Basically what it does is it, the act allows funds, it allows monies, organized efforts in, for wildlife. So it puts like an 11% excise tax on anything hunting value, so ammunition, anything like that, and those funds are then allocated to the state's. And then that money goes back into wildlife restoration. And we still have that. We still have that you today. You go buy bullets, you go buy any, a gun. A gun, ammunition, any, as far as I know, anything hunting-wise. You know, anything hunting. So I think it even applies to bow and arrows. So anything hunting involved with that, 11% tax. And that's that's not included your federal tax that, and everything else. That's on top. So on top of that. That's an 11% tax that goes. And that, you know, that goes back. And, and who manages that? I think it's first state, I mean federal, but then the feds allocate it to the states. To the know? states, okay. Yeah, yeah, and then the states, and like so much of our publications and educational resources and restocking efforts comes from those funds. So it's hunters and conservationers and people that are using the resource that are actually helping to restore it in, in those early days. And even that continues to this day in North America and in Africa and everywhere else. You know, it's hunters and conservationists that well, are I, I really doing the legwork. I want to say that hunting is like a four four billion dollar industry something like that in the state of texas oh yeah it's a huge number oh man when you think talk about all the hotels and the revenue and the yeah i would say four billion i would just surprise i don't know a number but that would not surprise me at all well just think about the 11 percent tax just on the part of that that's ammunition and guns and stuff like that that's bought that money goes a long ways to putting back and putting back in, yeah, into what we're taking which helps us with our wmas it helps us with um, publication education you know, restoration, you know, endangered species, habitat, everything. I well, mean, you, you name it. So conservation of hunters, the sportsmen are out there, you know, and it's a good thing. And I, I, Pittman-Robertson Act was a good thing, and it, and it basically allocated a lot of money to help wildlife. Absolutely. And, and at this point, there probably still wasn't any seasons or any of that kind of stuff on. You know, I think there was seasons. You know, they were starting to – but, you know, the science was new on it. You know, so I got to do it before we just – get to where you know i gotta do some shout outs to some former biologists out there you know that were really working you know guys in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s they were doing some incredible research trying to restock trying to you know and they were they were learning as a go they're great biologists you know absolutely but trying to you know do new things at one time and so much of our knowledge so much of what we're sharing here today is coming from from those early biologists. Out oh, there, absolutely! Especially tex in Texas, our, some of our early TPWD biologists, especially in the '60s, '70s, '80s, and even '90s, a lot of them have retired in, in the '80s and '90s. But I remember in high school growing up reading a lot of those guys, you know, and so don't they did you know, a lot of good stuff. Don't you know those guys like when some of their stuff was coming out of saying, "Hey, we need to slow down on killing killing wildlife." Mm -hmm. Why a lot of people frowned on that? Oh, yeah. But today we're very grateful that they did because we still have animals. Yes. And so, like in our neck of the woods, not so much North America, but in Texas, uh, the first game laws in Texas were first enacted in 1861. So that was kind of... 1861. That was some of your game laws. However, you know, like I said, we were learning about bag limits, buck-to-doe ratio. You know, we, we knew enough... If you want to make a population grow, the first thing you do is you protect the female segment of the population. Yes. That's why Milam County was a one-buck county for so long, because we were wanting the population to grow. When we'll get into that. but uh, Yes. So, however, just for an example, though, the mount, in 1903, the bag limit on deer was still still six bucks per season. So you could kill six, six bucks, bucks per, per, se yeah, per wow. season. And I don't know what the season was. You know what it was. It could have been two days. It could have been a month. We don't really know. Yeah, I don't know. And, you know, I, I've tried to do some digging, some research on, you know, what seasons bag limits were, even in the 50s and 60s, you know. Uh, and I couldn't find it. I'm sure the information's out there is probably holed away in Austin somewhere. It but, probably is. But, some, uh, somebody wrote it down somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but six bucks per season, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. And then, you know, you know, that was in 03. And then so during the early 1900s deer and other wildlife they just continued to decline with the lack of bag limits yeah i mean it was due to 
year-long hunting, few bag limits, and then not only that little observance of the game laws that were put into place. Like we talked, you know, you might have a law, but, uh, you know, unless there's somebody to force it or, you know, to That's tell right. you you're doing wrong, if nobody's looking, you know, it's just kind of going on the on the honor system. And, who, and I mean, and who is it that patrols that? It's the game wardens. It's the game wardens, well, you know. Well, in 1919, there were only six game wardens in the entire state of Texas. Yes. so That's not very many. Six people, you know, in order to patrol – Yes. The whole state of Texas. So think about that, yeah. <laughs> with with not that great a transportation to get from point A to point B. Yeah, 1919. 1919, yeah. yeah. They had a lot of co- er, co- a lot of area to cover. Didn't uh, they, they did have a lot of area to cover. <laughs> yeah, now if you guys stopped by a game warden in 1919. <laughs> that was something like, to talk about. <laughs> that was like getting struck by lightning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was something to talk about. Like I saw a meme the other day. It's like every now and then someone comes into your life and they take your breath away, leave you speaking speechless leave you motionless and you can't even think we call these people game ones <laughs> you know, but and we have we have several friends who are game ones. yes we do yes we do and, so, and, and and that's a tough job they have to do boy they really do they really do because you know yeah and kudos to them for the most part you know they do absolutely great 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 work. future generations will have hunting seasons because they're yes. protecting what they have what mm-hmm. we have here today uh so by 1929 is when we start to actually restock. In Texas, yeah. In Texas. So this is basically deer restoration in Texas. So we're like, hey, we got these game wardens that we're paying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we got all six of them. Yeah. We're just chilling out out there with nothing to do. Yeah, dang right. We need some deer for them to, to protect. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm sure, too, that the Pittman-Robertson funds, you know, and restoration stuff, that can also be used for conservation so i'm sure it can be used to hire biologists as well and game wardens and everything so, oh absolutely you know I guarantee to anything worthwhile. conservation so that's another good thing because yeah, they don't exactly have bake sales <laughs> no they to, don't to raise money to no. you know to, to when was the last time you saw a warden sitting outside of sefco selling cookies you know no, I, mean? I haven't <laughs> seen them in a while so <laughs> yeah. so so we got and they're pretty busy yes yeah i don't know if they have time to bake cakes and stuff <laughs> yeah with with uh with all the people that we have now in texas and mm-hmm. everybody and uh, as big as hunting has become oh it's huge and all that kind of stuff uh so so by 1929 we start to restock yeah we're we start trapping. to restore the deer in texas the biologists in texas started trapping and restocking they were taking deer from where they hadn't been totally extirpated in most of texas that was primarily only in the hill country and in south texas you know the deer just hadn't been extirpated there you know locally there was still enough deer that they could capture restock and then translocate them and so um, and, and we mentioned in our last episode that when me and you were growing up, you didn't see many deer. No, you didn't see very many deer at all. And I'm you sure, sure in the early days before the overkill of deer, that there were probably quite a few deer running around our area. It's good habitat. Oh, yeah, it was great habitat. Well, we knew there were deer. And, um, and just like we, we knew there, there was game everywhere. That's why, you know, and if you read the old stuff from like Ferdinand Lindheimer and some of the old early naturalists here, they describe it. You know, you can read the stuff in the Blackland Prairie, and they describe pronghorn antelope in the Blackland Prairie in Milam County. They were native to here, What is today around Cameron. They describe in the San Gabriel River, one of them described that San Gabriel River had so many alligators in it that it just wasn't in use. And so many of our creeks that are called Alligator Creek or Bear Creek, they were called that because, guess what? Those early settlers, there was bears in them, you know. There those, were bears? Yeah, there were bears. The hill country was known as bear country back Here. in the day, and, you know, because when it was not all cedars and it was an open savanna. With, and there's still black bear that come up into the hill country, you know, all the time. There's like young males dispersed out of Mexico and come in. So there was a lot of game out there before they got because it wasn't just white tailed deer getting exploited it was everything so we were changing habitat we we're changing land use we we're also killing them so but, they described there being being bear yes I, in central texas yeah. i did not know yes, that yeah and some to read some of those documentaries because they, they were good naturalists the ones that were coming over in the 1800s a lot of the old botanists and stuff and read their notes you know they would mention what they saw and you just read like lewis like what i mean think about cabeza de vaca back to him he describes bison in Louisiana, off the coast of Louisiana, when he lands. That far one south. The, one of the first thing he describes is bison. Oh, yeah, be. and that was in Louisiana. So it's really neat to to read those old stuff because it kind of tells us what was here. But and you talk about the alligators too. Mm-hmm. Well, they're a big enemy of the deer, <laughs> of the white-tailed deer. Well, yeah. I and if see. there's that many alligators and stuff, that's not helping the deer population. Well, I wouldn't think either. so. But yeah, he that that one writer he sure mentions that about San Gabriel River, the San Gabriel having lots of alligators in it. You don't which know what year that was. 
I can figure it out. I don't have it with me, but I've got a the history of the Blackland Prairie of Texas, and it mentions it. I, I, I remember specifically them writing about San Gabriel, but I'll bring it up on our next episode for sure. Uh, yeah, we'll have, to, yeah. we'll have to look into that a little deeper. Yeah, because that's a, that's a whole other topic that's fascinating in itself. Is what you know? was here and is not here anymore. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I wonder how we chose a deer to restock. Out of all the stuff that was here and is no longer here, bison and well, and because white-tailed deer alligators and white-tailed deer and we bear. are fascinated. Well, number one, <laughs> as need- much as I like bear, but you know, early settlers when you had chickens and everything else, you got to live with these animals too. There was a reason that our ancestors kept dogs. There was a reason <laughs> that they killed all the wolves. I mean. Yeah, That's there true. was exploitation, but when you got to live out there with them, you know, you don't really want a mountain lion in your backyard. Let's let's not restock the predators. How does that sound? <laughs> well, that's a controversial issue, uh, but you know, it's worth a conversation. It yeah, predators certainly serve their place in nature, not a doubt about it. But you know, the definition of wildlife management is the application of ecological knowledge to vertebrate species in a mat and their plant and animal counterparts in a manner which strikes a balance between the needs of those animals and the needs of people. Right. So and that's where we've got to do. We've got to find that balance, you know. But back to white-tailed deer, why are we sticking with white-tailed deer? Well, it's because we're fascinated with white-tailed deer. We're fascinated with antlers. There's something in our DNA that loves antlers. Well, I mean, they've been you, around for four million years, Chansey, so yeah, our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpas was probably... Yeah, well, I think about in England. I mean, you couldn't kill the king's deer, you know, and the old giant castle walls were adorned with huge antlers, you know, and some of them... I mean, and even to this day, white-tailed deer... I mean, think about it. We've got... Now that we've got exotics in Texas, there's, you know, you can hunt fallow deer you can hunt axis deer you can hunt red deer but you go to somebody that's even hunted those you know they might have one or two axis deer mounted on their wall but there's four or five six multiple white tails they go white tail deer hunting every year absolutely every year well they may not go axis deer hunting every year but white tail deer are a big deer and you know for whatever reason if it's in our dna which i think has a lot to do it we love our white tail deer that, and that's it's not right. just us texans either you know now some farmers cuss them but for the most of us we, we like them yeah we like <laughs> them until they go to eating our cotton and, <laughs> yeah and, and eating the tops out of our corn we like them until that point yeah. they're real cute they run out in front of our car oh yeah, yeah speaking that of that really... two bucks man just got killed in my neck of the woods just this week you know talking about biology and everything but it's what today this is december 11th 12th or whatever well about a month ago you know the peak in rut activities usually in a uh, november 10th 11th here we are 28 days later and bucks getting hit again so anything that did well, that's a whole nother topic anyway <laughs> many post oak savannah counties they received deer in varying degrees from 1936 into the 1950s and since we're in the post oak savannah that's what we're focusing on because it got a lot of it, you know, was really extirpated. And so that's where Landon's grandpa comes in. Yes, absurd. Uh, he's a game warden in Milam County. Yes, sir, he was. And um, he was, I don't know exactly when, but it was all during the 80s. And when we were growing up, 80s, he might have got here in the early 80s, I would say, maybe the late 70s. And that was in the heat of this restoration. Yes, and also the heat of, you know, talking to my father-in-law and, you know, even some old-timers at the feed store and stuff. They were happy to get They said there was quite a bit of outlaws running around Milam County as far as didn't really adhere to a whole lot of game laws, even uh, even in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm so glad everybody now abides by all the laws. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway. Game can retire now. <laughs> yeah. But so where were we trapping these deer at? They were mostly coming from, um, you know, at differing times, but most of them were coming from the hill country. And South Texas. Now, now later in the year, some of them started coming from, I believe, from Milam County specifically, from the Kerr Wildlife Management Area, which if you're not familiar with Kerr Wildlife Management Area, which is Texas Parks and Y, and you like white-tailed deer, I highly encourage you to do some research on Kerr WMA. They have incredible biologists that work there. So much of what we know, so much of what we're talking about right now come came out of Kerr WMA. And a lot of the biologists, Gene Fox and Donnie Frills and Armstrong, Bill Armstrong, the lights, incredibly brilliant guys. Um, so, as in Kerr, as in Kerrville? Yeah, Kerrville. So, it's called the Kerr WMA. And a lot of our research, that we, a lot of stuff we know about Texas white-tailed deer came from that area. Incredible guys. And um, I think in our later stockings, like the stockings in the 80s, I think some of those deer in Milam County Kerr, came from Kerr WMA. You know, in Milam County, that was in the 80s, but specifically from 1954 to 55, Parks and Wildlife, put 28 deer in in Milam County. And then the year of 55, 56, they went to 30. They released and restocked 30 deer in the county. 
And then it stopped. It didn't went away until the 80s. I wonder the numbers got better. Uh, you know, I don't know if they got better or if, we or if people killed everything or what. Because, you know, you're looking, at, you're looking at just in that time for those two years, they basically brought in 58 deer. If there wasn't many game worms going around or whatever, some people might have killed them. You know, I don't know. And so, I, and so talking to people that were here, those deer they brought in had freeze brands on them. Some of, I know the ones in the 80s did. I heard that. Had like a white mark on the ones in the 80s. And I think that's where David Green, you know, the late David Green, where he was very influential in helping get deer in Milam County involved. So that would have been all the 80s from, you know, so in 1980 to 81, 30 deer were brought in. 83, 84, 19 deer. 85, 86, 9 deer were brought to Milam County. And then in 1986, 87, 130 deer were brought in. And that would have been, you know, during that time for of the 80s and with David getting deer back into Milam County and restocked. And all the deer that we have here now pretty much go back to those deer. Oh, absolutely. They do. I mean, we didn't have them. They were extirpated. So, you know, people start talking about need to bring in new genetics. Well, that's a bunch of malarkey, really. I mean, all of our genetics are basically from South Texas or, you know, the hill country because that's the deer that were brought in. So it's highly, you know, they're, they're diverse. You just got to manage the resource, you know. So really interesting yes. to think about because if – and, you know, of course, because I didn't know, but I know in the Blackland Prairie there wasn't any deer, you know, until the late 90s. But evidently in Milam County, there were some deer, like probably around Gauls on the Burlington County line, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know. And I'm guessing people could hunt them, but that was a, a one-buck county then. And I know as far until back. Until pretty recent. Like, yeah. that had just recently changed. Yeah, as far back as I can remember in high school and growing up, Milam County was always a one-buck county. And you couldn't kill does. And the reason you couldn't kill does is we are trying to restart and restore the white-tailed deer population. So, you know, if you want to protect, or if you want to grow a herd, if you want to grow a population, first thing you do is protect the female segment. So, right. yeah, so and it, and it goes they're in, the baby makers. It goes hand in hand with with us getting more deer in our in our area. Yeah, we're also getting more hunters. Yeah, and like then, like property, you know, is now selling for hunting purposes. And oh yeah, just total recreation because we have so many deer now, mm-hmm. uh, and so. So that kind of brings us to where we are with the where today with you the know? deer we have today. Yeah, and now we've got different laws, and now you can kill does in my and now County. You can, how many? Well, how does that law work? The doe law. Yeah. Uh, well, it started out two days around Thanksgiving or something, it or four was, days around Thanksgiving is how they started. Got the feel of it, see how it went, and then some. You know, back to TPWD. I know people have differing feelings, but there's some really good white-tailed deer biologists in charge that work at TPWD, and they know what they're doing. They decided, well, let's expand it. You know, so you know they've been doing browse surveys, they've been doing spotlight surveys, they've been on the ground monitoring these deer herds, and then also talking to hunters, and then looking at the habitat, because our biologists go out there in the winter, and they do browse surveys, you know, and looking at what's being eaten, and that'll tell you the carrying capacity of your land, or a county, or whatever, so a lot of the data coming in, like, you know what? We got Milam, plenty for them to eat. We're growing, yeah, we're growing deer, the deer population seems good, you know, Milam County can probably sustain some doe harvest because bow hunters were able to kill it and youth were able to kill them for a while but now so there's a season so now we're we're basically back at carrying capacity of the county you know deer doing good we're seeing more bucks you know everybody seeing bigger bucks in general whether it's antler restrictions or game laws you know and enforcement of laws and also people educating you know people are learning more about white-tailed deer and so they're also managing for deer as well and so here we are today and we raise a number of bucks too yeah, we're raising good bucks. Like I said, people are coming to yep. Milam County to that hunt That we can here. kill, I should have said. What's that? That we can harvest. Yeah, we yeah we can kill two bucks in Milam mm-hmm. County now. Yeah, we sure can kill two. So, to me, it's you look at the history and then the ex- from exploitation and over exploitation to no deer and then to the restocking and where we are today, it's been a huge success in my opinion. Isn't that the truth? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's actually a really interesting story. Yes, yeah, and, fascinating. And you know, like all of the post oak savannah parts of East Texas were all restocked variously, you know. And then since then, those animals, as long as they were protected, you know, those popular because you can kill a lot of buck. And the does still get bred eventually. You know, you can kill a lot. So, you know, one buck can breed a lot of does. But if you start killing all your does, too, you know, they're the baby makers. So they were protecting those does, and that population was growing. You know, I read somewhere one time that whenever your deer numbers go up and you almost you start to get too many yeah. deer, mm-hmm. it's that one-to-one buck-to-doe ratio, like, of, of, of twins and whatnot. Mm-hmm starts to favor the bucks. You know, I do, I, I've read some stuff like that. And in your duro, you know, on, on general, as a general rule of thumb, you know, as far as when you look at fecundity, the amount of eggs produced, amount of semen, and like in utero, the amount 
of inside the, the doe's uterus. You could say it's one-to-one, -one, but there's some research that says it's a little bit skewed towards bucks. And I, and I believe that. And in South Texas, I think it is. Like, it's, you know, instead of 50% doe babies and 50-cent buck babies, you know, it might be 55% bucks and 45% does. And that's in uterus. So the number that hit the ground might be skewed to, towards bucks. But then after one year, it's back to it's does are more favorable. You know, after six months, does, they're... The ratios favored does. Sure. And it's because little boys get in more trouble. I mean, it really is. I know, but I think Bill Armstrong said it like that one time. It's because, you know, they disperse. They go out further. You know, they're more tempted for a pressure. But then the does make them disperse later on in life. Sure. And when they disperse, it's a dangerous time for a little buck, you know. Absolutely. So I, you know, I can see that, you know, as carrying capacity. And like you said, environmental factor. Because I know for a fact, you know, a lot of stuff, the photo period affects a lot of deer move, um, deer activity growth regulation hormone act everything but there are environmental factors that are just as important like i said nature finds a way i think there's cues and hormones and all kinds of stuff you know that may be going in the environment that you know deer like i said white-tailed deer is the most studied species on north america probably lots of people it's big business a lot of money goes in it a lot of research mississippi state does lots of research on deer texas does lots of research today. now kansas oklahoma the midwest becoming big deer so there's lots of studying we're learning a lot about deer but there's a bunch we still don't know Yes. That don't, there's, we, there's a lot about white-tailed deer that we don't know, and that's why I find them fascinating. I think that's why hunters and that's why people go after them every year. They're fascinating. And, I mean, if you consider that, that before the early 1900s, nobody even really cared anything about I mean, as far as, like, just shooting them, and that was about it. Shooting Nobody them. cared much about the science of it or anything as no. far as that goes. So look how far we've come in such a short amount of time. Yes, really I mean, we have. Really, I mean, 120 years? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's yes. a lot. It's a great success story. It Absolutely. is a great success and story. Like I said, we have a lot of uh, those early people involved in Parks and Wildlife for Texas to thank for that. Yes. Yeah. And so I guess we'll kind of conclude our first part of this series yeah. on the history of the white-tailed deer right there. Sounds good to me. Because uh, yeah. uh, we'll try to pick up next time with like the habitat and stuff. Yeah, let's talk about kind of the habitat and then why do deer eat what they eat and why do they do that, you know, something like that. Sure. Mm -hmm. And before we go today, though, we're going to go to some listener questions. Okay. All right. Uh, we only have time for a couple. Uh, we have a lot of good questions uh, that people were texting me, people were Facebooking different things. I guess before we... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's gonna take some editing. <laughs> Chancy, keep your owl quiet over there, bud. You're gonna ruin the rest of the segment. Oh well, that was that Bluetooth man. It'll get you. Okay, you're, that, that's gonna come in here in just a little bit. Cause, <laughs> yeah, because we're gonna it'll we're lead gonna, you to the question, I guess. We're, we're gonna answer these questions here real quick. That a few of these that we got <laughs> that uh, that we could answer here pretty quick. And our first question comes from Nick Rola. Nick's a friend of ours from high school, yeah. uh, uh, from Cameron here, a uh, really good guy. And Nick said he's sitting at his deer stand, and lo and behold, guess where? Bear Creek. On Bear Creek. Oh, we didn't see no bears out there, Chance. Yeah, no, no bears. I don't no know bear. if the bear restoration has started out there at Bear Creek yet yeah. or not. But Historically, it's probably called Bear Creek. And he though, did ask why it's called Bear yeah, Creek. Probably a long time ago, somebody saw a bear or thought they saw a bear, and, you know, it's just stuck. Oh, it was, yeah. it was like a... It was like the present, the modern day Sasquatch. <laughs> you know, everybody sees everywhere, but nobody has seen. Yeah, no trail cameras picked up. No yet anyway. trail cameras. Well, some people claim, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so Nick says he's sitting in his deer stand, mm -hmm. and it's getting dark. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he hears this loud scream noise, and he wants to know if there, if it was possibly from a big cat, like a bobcat, mountain lion kind of thing. Well, you know that's a good question, Nick, and be. Uh, quite honest with you, I have heard, you know, for years and years and years of big cats screaming. I've never heard one. Um, and I don't know anybody that has heard one, but I'm not saying that they don't do it. You know, I don't. I know that bobcats will. I've heard bobcats do it before. And so if a bobcat has that possibility, perhaps a, a big cat, a mountain lion, cougar, catamount, whatever you want to call it, could do it as well. I just, you know, if you did hear it and it, you could verify that, that's awesome. You know, that'd be cool. But more than likely around here. And we I'm, hear of big cats being in this area. Yeah, there's uh, there's not a doubt. Uh, we've had calves, like, you know, ranching. Mm -hmm. We've had calves, like baby calves drug up into trees. Oh, really? And found them, like, on, like, a you know, a bottom branch of a tree or something. Not like a whole calf. Really? Know, parts of it. You, yes. You've seen that Yes, here? I've seen it. Oh, no kidding. I'll be. Well, that's, yeah. Well, I, there's no doubt 
mountain lions in the county you know i mean now especially with the main source of of white-tailed deer i mean of mountain lion is white-tailed deer and so as you know the deer populations grow you know and they go up and down the creeks and the rivers then you know, a cat population makes sense we'll follow them you know now they have large home ranges you know I mean, depending on the habitat, and when I say habitat, you know, you can't, you're talking about mountain lion habitat, or which is deer habitat, basically. So, you know, depending on habitat quality and the amount of deer, that home range is going to vary. So, there's probably, we're not tripping over mountain lions, you know, yes, by any means. Yes, absolutely not. But they're certainly here, and so if there was one, I'm not, I'm not saying that it couldn't be that, you know, because they, there definitely are big cats here, you know. And, and we've got plenty, and we have, yeah, and there's. Plenty of mountain, I mean, bobcats. By, Plenty for of bobcats. Sure. Yep. Bobcats ever. And they can be really loud. I mean, you know, they, they, they do a loud call, you know. And, uh, so, they, so Chansey. Yes. <laughs> what? Speaking of loud calls. Yeah. So more than likely. Owls actually make a sound. Yes. And more than likely, what's more common out there, depending on, you know, your habitat, you've got barn owls <laughs> out there. And what do they sound like, Chansey? Barn owls sound if, like I, this. I, I want to say we've heard one in this. In this in this series so far, Mackenzie, let us know what one sounds like. Did you hear that? Okay, and what type of owl is that? That is a barn owl, as in B A R N, the real white faced one. Now their habitat, they're a main, they're a number one mouse eater, mouse and rat and vole eater. So they like it very open. So out in our neck of the woods, Brad, in the Blackland Prairie. You'll hear that sound. Me and you have heard them before. Yeah, we've yeah. been sitting down. Yeah. on on the creek at nighttime. Yeah. Now, see, now that's what's interesting. There is another owl that's common in this area. We call them bar, they're called barred owls, like B A R R E D. Correct. But we call them hoot owls. Now they'll do a really cool call too. They they have lots of different sounds. But at night times, I've heard them before. They'll do kind of a scream call as well. A very scary sound. Yeah. So the you got two to. But in general, if you're in the woods, like in a bottomland with a lot of trees, that's the habitat of a barred owl. You know, the the hoot owl. And then if you're in more open area, um, that's the habitat of the barn owl, the B A R barn owl, and then also the uh, the uh, Great horned owl. And as far as I know, I've never heard a great horned owl scream, but they just, you know, that's that, you know, they're just a coo, a hoo, you know. Sure. They don't, they don't have anything. But more than likely at nighttime or late in the evening, if you hear a scream in this area, very often it's, it's a barn owl. It's a barn owl. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, Nick, that's probably what you were hearing out there. Possibly. Don't yeah. We, don't Especially we... if you're hearing it every, you know, pr- on a pretty regular basis. You know, if you, you, you know, not every night, but, you know, if you hear them pretty regularly, that's more than likely what it is. So, but don't be too alarmed, Nick. It's probably safe to come out of the deer stand. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. So, so, so hopefully that answers Nick's question. <laughs> Moving on, Kayla Graham, yeah. who Chancey grew oh, yeah. up with. Yeah, I know Kayla very, very well. Hunted with her dad and hog hunted a lot. And even when Kayla went, she was a little bitty rascal. You know, she would go with us too. So You mentioned him with the blue lacy dogs, didn't you? Uh, her uncle Tom. Her yeah, uncle Tom. Uh, yeah. Um, her daddy had old. He liked yellow curds, and he had old, old yellow curd. And he was as good, not if not better, than Flocko. He was good. And his name was Bob, and he was a he was a neat dog to watch because he was a slow and steady hunter. Uh-huh. I loved watching him track, you know, and 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 uh, go. He was a a really neat dog, but he was a a natural bobtail. Uh, yellow cur, black mouth cur. I'm not sure. He's actually like, and if you read like the kind of dog that the book was based on, Old Yeller, he was a one of those kind of dogs. He was a natural bobtail cur dog. And if you go to like Mason, Texas, right now they have a statue of Old Yeller, and sure enough, he's a bobtail. Is that he's right? A bobtail dog. Yeah. I'll be. Yeah. So no, now that was uh, her dad. He had, he had that. So we hunted a lot together. And Kayla's and she, still hunting. Yeah, she still is. Yep, Kayla and, is. And she wrote this question in. She said. I saw a doe with warts all around its mouth and eyes a couple weeks ago. What is that? Is that the same warts that cattle get? So we know all warts are caused by viruses. Yes, yes. But, but is it the same virus as, as causes cattle warts? Or is it no, no. It, deer have a really specific virus. It's like called cutaneous fibromas, which are warts, you know, and they mostly get on their faces and eyes and everything. And from what I've read, I mean, I'm not a vet for sure and can't say, but from what I read, it's a very deer specific virus and it's not able to transfer to humans or to people. Um, And it looks nasty as all get out, you know, but you know, everything suggests that it doesn't hurt the meat, you know, at all. It doesn't hurt the deer as far as eating it. It just looks really nasty, especially if they get it really bad. I've seen it on their sides, 
you know. Yes, it forms like a face. big mat almost. Yeah, and, and really it's prone for their eyes and face and cheeks, ears, and it can be really very ugly, you know. And so people see that and kind of freak out. And I can see why, but just if you do kill one or if they've got a few of them on there, they're safe to eat. Go ahead and clean it, but, you know, always be careful. Don't touch spinal fluid. You know, wear gloves. You know, just try to be careful. But mainly if they do cause problems, it's secondary infection. So, like, if the wart gets cut or festers or whatever and there's infection. So, if you're skinning an animal, and it, number one, don't eat anything that looks sick. Oh, absolutely. And and don't eat nothing that's got pus coming out of it. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, just, it's a pretty good law of nature, right? Yes, there. it is, you know, so – they're fine. They're quite common in deer. Uh, you know, like I said, everything I've read about it, you know, can't transfer to cattle, can't transfer to people. And so while we're on the subject, warts are common in cattle, too, mm-hmm. uh, in the same form or fashion. And, and uh, there's a good friend of mine, Dr. Trey Richter. He's a veterinarian mm-hmm. in Rogers, uh, excellent vet. And and we, we've had questions at the feed store over warts on cattle. And there is a vaccine okay. for cattle that you can give. Of course, I mean, nobody's going to catch a deer and vaccinate it for warts. But mm-hmm. but there's a vaccine for cattle that you could give for the warts, and you give it several times. Do the warts get on their face and yes. stuff just and like so that? so get this. Here's what he told me to do was to give this vaccine several times and to break one of those warts off and feed it to that cow. Really? Yes, and builds up immunity to it that way. And now his daddy was Johnny Richter? Johnny Richter. Yeah, oh, yeah, yes. yeah. I knew his daddy. Yeah, okay. Yes, so yes. Long a, line of vet. That's some good. Yeah. A little FYI. Yeah, yeah interesting. We've had so many people come in the feed store, and my cows have warts. What do I do? They get big like that, They too. do. They get really big. Huh. Yes, yes, they do. And it's all a virus. Yep. You know, and so so, so there is a vaccine that we sell at the feed store for that, and, and, and that's what he said to do was give it the vaccine. And these happened to be in some show cattle mm-hmm. uh, that we were raising for show and so we took a little more time with it, you know, and, and, and did what sure. he said to do, and they disappeared. I'll yeah, be. It worked really good. Uh, and so that so hopefully, Kayla, that answers your question. And one, one final question we'll get to here today before we go is from uh, Josie Powell. Yeah. Okay. Uh, from the Buckles Rogers area. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, Josie says that she's noticed an explosion of ladybugs lately. Uh, she hasn't noticed them in years past. Are they actually ladybugs? Or the Asian beetle that are so invasive. Uh, well, Josie, there's 600, what did I tell you, 600 species of ladybugs? Oh, you know, I'm not uh, even a sure. A ton of different species not, of them. And yeah. so it's what they're trying to do right now, and most of them are, I think, that Asian beetle. Oh, well, everything I'm seeing here in the last month is. And you yes. notice the difference? They've got a little more white on their head, mm-hmm. uh, and they, they, they bite. Yeah, and mostly they're orange, and they congregate in large stuff. And They know, do. They and, stink if you kill them or smash them. They have an odor to them? Yeah, they'll smell. I haven't actually paid attention to that, but but is what they're all trying to do right now, and every autumn they do, but I think it's just a larger population of them this year, is they tried to, to find warm places to winter at uh, yeah. in, in, in cracks and crevices and that type of thing. Uh, so they're starting to to creep through the cracks in the walls and, uh, you know, different ways of getting inside somewhere where it's warm. Yeah, and it's, you know, so deer stands, they they really congregate in them. I mean, I remember in Iowa when we, gosh, they were worse in Iowa than they seem to be up here. You know, Iowa, they would get in our deer stands, and, I mean, it was a mess. We'd have to take shop backs up there and oh. just vacuum them out by the thousands. And, yes, they're not native. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, we were looking at that earlier. According to Parks and Wildlife, so, they you, were brought here in the and, 60s. And to back up, we've always heard ladybugs are beneficials. That, Don't kill a ladybug because they mm-hmm. kill aphids. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so and that is true. Yes. They kill aphids and stuff. And so I guess there was a bad aphid infestation in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, in the 60s, uh, t- sound, you know, that we introduced these Asian beetles to control the aphids. For some reason, whatever, the populations exploded in the 90s. According to that, you know, and so and you see so many of so them. many of them now, and you know, I think from season from year to year they're worse. They're just like everything, you know, ups and downs and cyclical. Because uh, last year I don't remember seeing them this bad. Well, it's this year they've been pretty bad for me. Well, on my property anyway. You know, we had versus that, last year we had that hard freeze here mm-hmm. last winter that that probably. The coldest, definitely, definitely well, coldest freeze I've had since I've ever been. No alive. doubt. Heck, probably. I know my mom, too. She says, tell me, when was the last time it snowed twice in Milam County? Yes. Like, and you could make a snowball snow. And, and so you mentioned that, but mm-hmm. then, you know, you talk about it being in Iowa. 
So yeah. maybe they like cold. I mean, maybe cold weather does good things for them, and that's why there's so many of them this year. You know, that's a question it gets cold I do in not Iowa, know. Yes, it that, does. And that was back 20 years ago you were there. Yeah. Uh, so so perhaps that has something to do with it. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, you know, I think they've kind of just moved in and gotten worse over the years too because, you know, I remember when I see Asian beetles now, I think Iowa because that was where I was really exposed to them and just – hate got to hating them because i had to clean them up all the time and they stunk and but now you know like i said this year on my property at least is the worst i've seen them you know yes they're this everywhere. year this year yeah they and, and you'll notice in the winter time if you flip over different things you'll find them like like mm-hmm. hiding underneath there for the winter time there will be ladybugs yeah. getting out you know uh, uh so so chancy I guess that kind of wraps up this episode. Hey, this is, a, like always, Brad, it's always fun to sit that, here that, and visit with you. It has been enjoyable. Talk, talk the shop or talk stuff. I guess next week we'll uh, uh, pick up with, with deer habitats. Yeah, something, yeah, I think so. That's a good place to start off, you know, go from the history and then just go to sure. where, where deer occur and habitat. Maybe, maybe things you could do to, to improve the number of deer you have on your place, habitat. Absolutely, Speaking, you know, certain uh, habitat characteristics we can put out to place on our property that could help hold or attract deer. Absolutely, mm-hmm. uh, we'll pick up with that again next week. But uh, once again, we thank you for listening. Absolutely enjoyed it, Bradley. Yeah, me too. But hey, it's good talking to you, and I hope y'all have a great week. Till we talk to you next time. Bye bye. See you later.